0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org.
1: Today's scripture reading is from Second Samuel chapter 15, verses 7 through 12. This is the word of God. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron, but Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Let us
0: pray. Father, your word is not dead. Your word is alive. It is living and active. And we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, this morning you would prepare our hearts as we open it and as we learn from it, that you would teach us that you would teach us the lessons we need to learn. In your name I pray, amen. Please be seated. People always talk about family being the most important thing in life, but it's usually family that hurts you the most deeply and painfully. Let me say that again. People always talk about family being the most important thing in life, but it's usually family that hurts you the most deeply and painfully and painfully. For a second, let me walk through the Old Testament and what we've seen with families so far, if you'll bear with me. We first see Adam blaming his wife. Eve, it's your fault we sinned. Not my fault, it's your fault. You did it. Then we see their sons, Cain and Abel, Cain killing Abel. We see Sarah giving her servant to her husband to have a child because she's tired of waiting on God's promises and then abuses her and the child in jealous anger. We see Lot, after being dragged out of one of the most perverse cities in history that we're not really sure he wanted to leave, ends up having sexual relations with his daughters in order to keep his line intact. We see Isaac and Rebecca play favorites with their twin boys, whose sibling rivalry becomes one of the worst in history. Esau sells his birthright for soup. Grieves his parents by marrying a Canaanite woman and nurses a 20 year grudge against his brother, which in this situation that's probably deserved. Why? Because Jacob manipulates and deceives his brother out of his birthright and blessing, even though God specifically said he was the son of promise and it was coming to him. Laban gives Jacob the wrong daughter on purpose and then marries the woman, and then Jacob marries the woman he loves, which creates one of the most uncomfortable marriages we've ever seen. And that's saying a lot. Jacob and Laban proceed to have a major falling out and Jacob has to flee. Now, if you're with me, we're not out of Genesis yet. We're barely halfway through Genesis. I've not talked about Simeon and Levi destroying entire cities because of what they did to their sister, Dinah. We don't talk about Reuben sleeping with his brother's mom or his father's concubine. We're not talking about Joseph, right? Sold into slavery by his brothers because they didn't feel like killing him that day. We don't talk about Judah and Tamar. We're not talking about Joseph and his brothers again. We're not talking about Jacob, who when he goes to bless Joseph's sons, somehow switches his hand and does it wrong. We have in the Old Testament, a picture of real families. If we were reading our Bible and every family we saw was perfect, would you believe it? I wouldn't. I don't think I could believe it. Because you know what? There's no perfect family. Why? Because there's sin in this world. You put a bunch of selfish sinners together in confined spaces, sharing the intimacy of family. And guess what happens? Bad things. And that's the picture the Lord gives us. He gives a picture of sin, a picture of reality that we need a savior. Now, today's story is going to be no different. We have a son who is going to revolt against his father. He's going to do some unspeakable things in public sight. We have a counselor who's going to look to his own wisdom instead of God's to try to destroy the Lord's anointed. And we're going to see at the end of this two huge armies getting ready to face off. So if you haven't turned there yet, First Samuel, or 2 Samuel, sorry, 15, We're going to walk through this story through these three chapters, and then at the end we're going to come back and look at some application points. But let's start with the story, and let's start with the main character. Absalom. Now let me read you a little bit about Absalom. This is from chapter 14. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his head... For at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight, or five pounds. If you want a picture of Absalom, it's very simple. Look at me, and it's the exact opposite. There's beautiful hair. There's no blemishes. He's the perfect man. I think of Fabio. Do you guys remember Fabio? He was on the cover of all those smutty novels you see as you're checking out somewhere the guy with the long flowing hair, big, strong, and handsome. For those younger who don't know who Fabio is, think of Chris Hemsworth as Thor. Or think of Jason Momoa, a big, strong, handsome, beautiful looking man that had no blemish. Now, have we seen this before in Israel? Absolutely, right? We had Saul. You look at Saul and you look up and go, wow, that's an amazing man. He's a king. And that's what we see here with Absalom. This beautiful man. Now, the hair, I got to touch on this for a second. So thank you, Lars, for that. The hair is something amazing. Five pounds a year. Can you imagine the amount of hair this man has? Five pounds? I think if I would go ahead and shave my beard and cut off my hair, maybe I could get a couple ounces if I was lucky. But five pounds, that's a lot. Five pounds of hair. Beautiful hair. And I think it's kind of funny, Bentley and I were talking this week, that Bentley and I are the two who get to talk about Absalom when our hair is so much lacking. But Absalom, beautiful hair, beautiful hair. What else about him? We learned that Absalom is patient and cunning. So in last chapter, when Ben spoke to us, we learned about these two brothers and their sister, right? And you remember the story, Amnon takes advantage of his sister and eventually Absalom kills him. But during this time, Absalom shows one of his greatest characteristics, and that's patience. He is cold, calculating, and patient. He may look beautiful, but there's a very cold heart inside. He waits two years, two years, to take revenge on his brother. That's a lot of calculating and planning. We're going to see in our story today, he takes four years to overturn the government. Wow. Wow. This guy can wait. He's not somebody that says, I have to get this now. He can wait. He's not full of fury, but he's very patient and calculating. He's a very scary man. Beautiful, scary. And the last one I'm going to say is that he's completely fine with his actions. He's told himself what he's doing is for the right. And in the last story, we can kind of see that. You can think about Absalom here. If my sister was brutally raped by my brother and I give the Lord's justice, aren't I doing what's right? If my father, who is no longer worthy to be king and is destroying the nation, isn't it right that I take over from him and alleviate him from his duties? Absalom has a very self-righteous view of himself and what he's doing. So patient, good-looking, cunning, and has no problem with his actions, will do anything. All right, let's jump into the beginning here. So we first see Absalom. He is preparing. He's preparing. He gets a new car, horses and chariot in this situation. He gets his entourage, 50 men, to follow him around to make him look good. And he hangs out at the gate of the city of Jerusalem. Now, When I was a child, 1992, I had to look this up what year it was. Uh, I lived in central Ohio. And back at that time, many of the presidential candidates would bring their trains around. So if you're in the Midwest, presidential candidate would come through with their train. And in 1992, Bush Sr. was coming through in his spirit of America. It was a 21-car train. And it was pretty cool, especially to a little kid. All these beautiful cars lined up. President comes out, speaks to you for a couple minutes, and you think you're on top of the world, that the president would come to this small little place in Ohio to talk to me. It's kind of the same thing Absalom is doing here. Absalom looks like this very impressive character, and he stands outside the city and he does this. Hey, friend, welcome to Jerusalem. Glad you're here. Why are you coming? Are you coming on business? Oh, you're coming on business. That's great. Well, if you're going to the palace, the king doesn't care. He absolutely does not care. You're worthless. So if, you know, you make me king, maybe things would be different. But right now, nobody cares. So thank you for coming. We appreciate you, but go home. That's exactly what he did every day. Day after day after day. For four years, he's doing this. Same thing, every day. Friend, welcome. Welcome. Glad to have you, but nobody here cares. Go home. Now, we do have to take a step back and say there's probably something wrong with David's administration. If Absalom can sit at the front of the city and do this day after day for four years, you would think somebody would have stopped him, right? Doesn't that make sense? You would think somebody would have stopped him, Or you would think that David sends his own people out that says, hey, no, come in the city. We're happy to have you here. I will listen to everyone and you're all friends. We'd love to have you come in and talk to us. But no, we don't see any of that. All we hear is that Absalom, with his brand new car and his entourage, welcome every person that comes into the city. And because of this, he steals, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This is verse 6. He slowly over time has everyone love him and come to him. Instead of seeing David as their king, Absalom is truly the ruler in Israel at this point. He's taken all of the men's hearts and turned to him. And he's turned them against David. Now comes for the time for him to solidify his rule. He comes to his father. The passage uh, Ray just read for us. He comes to his father and says, father... Been here for four years, and I made a promise. When I was in this other kingdom, Geshur, I said that after four years, I'm gonna go and sacrifice to the Lord for bringing me back. Now, let's stop for a second. We know this is lies. But this is another thing about Absalom we need to remember. Absalom is gonna use whatever is at his hands to make his will come true, and that means the religious side. He doesn't worry about God. I'm going to use God to convince people that I'm the right king. He says, Dad, I want to go sacrifice. I promised myself I would if I made it here. And the Lord protected me through this. So I'm going to go sacrifice. So he grabs everything together along with 200 innocent men. All right, let's keep this. 200 innocent men he brings with him. They had no idea what was going on. But from a king's perspective, okay, maybe this looks all right. And he goes to Hebron. And he announces himself king. Very similar to the way David did not too long before. When he's there, he sends out so that when the time comes, there's this loud raising up of men. Absalom is king. Absalom is king. And it's heard throughout the entire country. And it says, the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So Absalom somehow convinces himself that it's right for me to be king. I'm going to Hebron. I'm going to sacrifice. The Lord wants me as king probably too. And let's just take over. Okay? That's the picture going on right now with Absalom. Let's shift at the end of chapter 15 and let's look at David. Okay? So David is sitting in his palace. Obviously, we've seen there's some problems with his administration. There's a lot of oversight here. He's missing things. And a messenger comes and says, David, your son just took over the kingdom. And what does David do? David goes, whoa, well, what are we going to do? Servants, what what should we do? And they decide to flee. They say, hey, it's time to go. We got to get out of here. Now, it's interesting. The servants don't say, David, you get out of here. We're going to stay put. We think they're right. We see every one of his household agree with him. And flee, start to flee the city. And we're going to see who his friends are. Before we get into this, it is important to understand the worth of friendship. Friendship is going to be huge in this story. David has some friends, and David has some enemies. We're going to read about Ahithophel, who went with Absalom and was an enemy. David in Psalm says, My brother who I shared a bull and bread with, turned against me. One of his closest friends turned against him. Then we also have friends that we're going to see, like Hushai, Abiathar, Zadok, that come with him and are happy to take on this scary time with him and to back him up. So we find out who David's truly friends are. And it's interesting, in our lives, don't we see this also? When things aren't going well, when things are bad, When people turn on us, at that point, you truly know who your friends are, don't you? It's not the person that turns away and says, yeah, we'll be friends again in a couple weeks when this is over. Or we'll be friends in a couple years when this is over. Or maybe we just shouldn't talk again. No, it's the people that come beside you and say, I don't care. I trust you. Trust in you. We can be friends to this. We can do. So David's going to find out his trustworthy friends. So David gathers everyone together. Everybody except for 10 concubines, and that's going to come up later in this story. But he gathers everyone together, and they start walking out of the city. Now, at the end of the city, David stops at a house, and most likely, David stood on top of this house, and he watched as people walked by. Now, there's two different thoughts here of what David's doing. One thought is, is that he's kind of the, the ruler. Think of Germany. Think of the U.S. when you see all the troops marching by the president um, You know, in World War II, overwatching his troops, seeing who's coming with him. Some say it's that perspective. David is the king, seeing who are the troops coming with him. And some say the perspective is that of a captain waiting for the ship to sink, making sure every single person is out of the city before me. Kind of like that second one, because I kind of hope that's what David was doing. He's making sure everybody he loved is out of this city before Absalom comes in and destroys everything. Right? If you are still... For David in this city, when Absalom comes, you're dead. So we got to get everybody out. So everybody starts coming by David. We see the Cherethites and the Pelethites. If you remember them, they are a hired personal guard for David. They've been with him prior to when he was king. They have been his honor guard for a long time. Think of these guys as the extremely good mercenaries that cover David's back. Right. Are they loyal to David? Maybe, but they get paid. All right. So they're also loyal to money. So they're with him. They're walking out. Then we meet this strange guy, Ittai the Hittite. And we're going to go into a story a lot. But let me just quickly run through it. We see David go, hey, Ittai, what are you doing? Don't come with me. You just got here. What are you doing? Ittai says, well, I'm from Gath. I heard about you, David. You're a cool guy. I'm going to come with you. And David goes, no, 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 no. The Lord will bless you. You stay here. Don't come with me. You're brand new. And basically, Ittai says this. As the Lord lives and as my Lord, the king lives, wherever my Lord, the king shall be, wherever, whether for life or for death, there also will your servant be. So Ittai says, you know what? No matter what happens, I'm coming with you, buddy. And all of my troops are coming with you, too. Even my children, says the small ones. So we see this first friend of David, somebody who doesn't really know him but has heard of him and knows that he's the Lord's, follows him. So Ittai comes through. Next we have Abiathar and Zadok, the two priests. And they're coming through and they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. All right, what is the Ark of the Covenant? This is by far the most visible thing that you can see in all of Israel, right? They're bringing the Ark with them. Now, if you remember, the last time the Ark was used in this way, they took it to a battle and it got captured. The Philistines captured the Ark. Right, Because they're kind of using it as this good luck charm rather than what it's supposed to be used for. And the same thing is kind of happening here. Abiathar and Zadok say, we're going to bring the ark with you, David, to prove to everybody that the Lord is with you. And David says to me, guys, don't make the same mistake we've made in the past. Do not bring the ark. You need to stay here. Why do you need to stay here? Well, the Lord has given you a job to the people. You need to stay. You need to minister to the people. The people are more important than me in this situation. I'm going to get through this. If the Lord wants me to see the ark again, if the Lord wants me to see Jerusalem again, if the Lord wants me to see you again, it's going to happen. Don't worry about it. Please go back. And by the way, you both have sons, Jonathan and Ahamas, and I'm probably saying that wrong, but we'll call him Ahamas for now. Jonathan and why don't you keep them close so that if I need some messengers or we need to do some secret, you know, messages, I can talk through them. And Abiathar and Zadok say, yes, that's great. We're going to go back. We will minister to the people in Jerusalem. We will keep an eye on what's going on and we will use our sons as secret messengers. So the Lord's actually taking care of David in this, Right. In that David trusts the Lord, the Lord blesses David with kind of this spy circuit automatically set up, right? So think of this as, you know, the skunk works of, I know what's going on, I'm the priest, people talk to me, I can get information, and now I have a way to get it to David. So David's setting up his spy network, and they pass him, and people keep blowing by. Eventually, everybody passes David, and David starts to walk up the Mount of Olives. As David is walking up the Mount of Olives, he's crying. He's weeping over what he's losing. Lord, how can this happen to me? How can this happen to me? Lord, what is going on? He's totally defeated, totally crushed. And at that moment, when David is as his worst, like normal, something else bad happens. A messenger comes and it says, Ahithophel, your counselor, your best counselor, By the way, he's with Absalom. And David goes, Lord, wow, I don't know what to do here. Help me. Please do something to stop the counsel of Ahithophel. Later, we're going to learn that Ahithophel's counsel is like the words of the Lord. It's so great that whatever he does happens. It's like the words of the Lord. David says, Lord, help me out here. I don't know what to do. He starts walking up the mountain. A couple steps later, he hears this voice, David. David. Wait for me, David. Wait for me. I'm coming. I'm coming. And we learn about this guy named Hushai. Now, Hushai is David's friend. Now, friend in this situation doesn't normally, doesn't mean like we would think of friend. Friend is an actual royal title for Hushai. Now, did David have a good relationship with him? Yes, absolutely. It says later on, David and Hushai had a relationship. But his title of friend is actually a royal title. So he's some type of very special counselor. A lot of rulers over the years have something called a truth-sayer, where they'll keep this person with them, not because they're necessarily the best counselor, not necessarily because they're anybody special, but they're somebody that's willing to speak the truth to them. Most kings, what are they looking for? They're looking for somebody that's going to disagree with them and tell them what's really going on. And that's probably the role that Hushai plays. So Hushai comes into this and says, David, wait for me. I'm coming. I'm coming. Wait for me. And David goes, Lord, thank you. You just gave me an out with Ahithophel. Hushai, let me tell you what, buddy, you're out of shape. It's not going to be good for you to come with us. This is not going to be good on you. Go back to the city and defeat Ahithophel's council. I'm sure at this point Hushai is sitting there going, oh, I shouldn't have come to David. I should have just ran off with somebody else. I'm supposed to go back and defeat the man whose words are as of the Lord? But he says, David, okay, I'll go. And David says, don't worry. Abiathar and Zadok already went back. The sons are there. They're gonna support you too. Go back to the city. So Hushai runs back to the city and we'll see what he does in a minute. David keeps going on and we meet our next character, Ziba. Ziba is the servant of Mephibosheth. Now, if you remember, when David took over from Saul, David said, is there anyone left of Saul or Jonathan's family that I can take care of, right? And Ziba says, yes, there's this guy, Mephibosheth. He's a cripple, but he can can take it. And David meets Ziba on the way, and Ziba has all of this stuff for David. He's got food, he's got donkeys, he's got everything you need when you're on the run, right? And David says, Ziba, thank you. Wow, where's your master? Ziba says, hey, my master thought that with Absalom, he's going to be able to get Saul's kingdom back. So he basically turned on you and he stayed in Jerusalem. He doesn't care about you anymore. And David goes, wow. Everything that was Mephibosheth's is now yours, Ziba. Thank you. Now, I'm going to leave the story there because I don't want to give this away, but there's a lot more to this story that we're going to see next week with Bentley. Next is Shimei. Now, Shimei, he's a Benjamite. Now, if we remember, Saul was a Benjamite. Smallest tribe. They probably got the short end of the stick for a lot of things. And there's a lot of anger between Benjamites and David when he took over. And Shimei takes all of this hate, all of this anger, and he lets it out on David in his worst possible spot, right? David's leaving the city in defeat. They're getting across the Jordan or trying to get across the Jordan. And here comes this guy and he starts throwing rocks and he screams at him, you man of blood, you deserve this. For what you did to Saul and his household, you deserve it. Told you you would get this, told you, right? You think of the people uh, in, a, in a football game that are yelling scoreboard. If you've ever seen that, right? When your team is winning and you really want to rub it in, you yell scoreboard at the other team, right? Because they can't say anything back. That's kind of what is doing here. Hey, scoreboard, told you. You're a man of blood. Nobody likes you. Get out. Now David does something interesting here. Abishai, one of the sons of Zariah, Joab's brother, is with him. And Abishai, true to his character, says, let's kill this guy. This is ridiculous. He's not allowed to talk to the Lord's Lord's anointed like this. Now let's take one second and talk about the sons of Zariah. The sons of Zariah, Joab and Abishai, and their other brother who is now dead, were kind of the violent arm of the military, right? Think of it this way. I played football for a lot of years and there's always somebody you loved having on your team. It's the guy that is a little bigger and a little scarier than everybody else. When you talk to him, you're not really sure if he likes you or not. You're just kind of scared of the guy. But when you get on that football field and things are going down, there's nobody better to have on your side. Everybody's scared of him, right? That's the sons of Zariah. Think of it this way. We've had lots of movies. We've had lots of heroes that say, hey, I do for this democracy what people can't do so people can sleep at night. I'm that guy. That's the sons of Zariah. They take these hard situations and they kill a whole bunch of people and make it go away. Are they right in what they do? No, not necessarily. Do they get what they want out of the situation? Do they accomplish things the other can't? Absolutely. And hence we have that here. And for once, Abishai is following the law. In Deuteronomy, or I'm sorry, in Exodus 22:28 28 it says, you shall not revile God nor court, nor curse a ruler of your people. So Abishai basically is following the law, saying, hey, we can kill this guy. Let's go kill him right here. And David, you know, earlier in life, I think probably would have been like, sure, let's do it. Let's get rid of him. I'm tired of it. Right, but no, David says, you know what, Abishai, you are so silly. Stop. If the Lord put him here to curse me, who are we to stop him? The Lord sent him. The Lord is teaching me something and the Lord will be my revenge. We don't need to take it. And so David goes on, does nothing to Shimei and reaches the river Jordan and is refreshed. So we, now we have David out of the city. We have Absalom coming in. Now as Absalom comes into the city, we see Hushai again and he says, long live the king, long live the king. Now in Hebrew, when you say a word twice, It adds emphasis, right? So we see when the ark is being made, we see it being made with gold, gold, meaning extremely pure gold, really good gold. Or you see silver, silver, which is extremely pure silver. Or you see Hosanna, Hosanna. Definitely glorify God here. Same thing is happening here. Hushai comes in and says, Absalom, I'm here for you, buddy bring me back into your good graces. And Absalom goes, why? You're David's friend. Why didn't you leave with your buddy? And Hushai says, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and say that you are the Lord's anointed and I'm going to stay with you. Why wouldn't I be with the Lord's anointed? He's right now playing up to Absalom's vain nature and saying, you're the Lord's anointed. I'm going to stay with you. And Absalom takes it, says, okay, welcome. Welcome. Then he calls his counselors together and says, gentlemen, we've got the city, we're here, what's next? And Ahithophel says, Absalom, we're gonna do the one thing that is gonna destroy David's rule in the city. You're gonna take those 10 concubines that he kept here, we're gonna go up and we're gonna put a tent on the roof and you're gonna have sex with each one of those concubines in broad daylight to prove that you are king in this town and there's nothing David can do about it. And everybody said, this is good counsel. Now, why is this happening? Well, let's go back to uh, 2 Samuel 12. When Lars taught us, and he says, the Lord says, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all of Israel, and before the sons, and before the sun. So in his advice, we're seeing prophecy come true. Absalom takes these women, and in the sight of all of Jerusalem, on the same rooftop that David most likely saw Bathsheba, goes into all the concubines to prove that he is truly king instead of his father. Coming back to family so hard, he's truly taking over. From his father. And we see chapter 16 ending with this. Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave. Was if one of consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel. esteemed both by David and by Absalom. So at this point David's truly crushed. Absalom has come in and taken his house. He's come in and taken his wives. And he's done it in public sight. And at this point Ahithophel is it. Okay, we come to the next chapter and things change. Things change quickly. Ethel says, Absalom, give me 12,000 men. We're going to have this strike force. We're going to go just kill David. We're going to go kill David. We're going to take care of it. You're going to greet me when I am come back. We're going to have a big party. Let's just be done with this. Let's go. David's tired. He's got a whole bunch of people with him. He's got women and children with him. Let's just take him out. We'll kill David. Bring everybody else. They can be your slaves. Whatever you want. Let's go. And Absalom goes, oh, this is good. I like this idea. I love it. Well, let's check one more person. Let's talk to Hushai. So he brings in Hushai. Remember, David's friend. And he says, Hushai, this is what we want to do. Now Hushai's sitting there, I'm sure sweating at this point, going, how am I going to get David out of this one? He's dead. He thinks about it and he comes up with something. He He says, Absalom, Ahithophel normally has wonderful advice. He is the best of the best. And who am I? To go against him. But in this scenario, this isn't very good news. You don't want to do this. You know, David is a man of war. David is going to be like a bear in his cave. You go into a bear's cave. Guess what happens? Bad things. The bear wins. Same thing here. You go after David when he's down and out. He's going to slaughter you. And what are people going to say? Absalom told you you couldn't be king. This isn't going to work well. And and you know this, Absalom. You know your dad and what kind of guy he is. And on top of that, David is the sneakiest person ever. He avoided Saul for all these years by hiding in caves, hiding here, hiding there. He's going to do the same thing. You're not going to find him. You're going to look like an idiot. Instead, let's wait a little bit. Let's get all of Israel together and let's go crush everyone. Forget just David. Let's kill all the families. Let's kill anybody that followed him. Let's kill everyone. This is way better. And Absalom, after thinking about it, says, You're right. Let's do that. Let's do that. That's great advice, Hushai. Now, was it really that good of advice by Hushai? Maybe. But in verse 14, it says For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. We learn what's really going on here. We learn that while Hushai might have given some good advice against fell, what really happened is that the Lord said, nah, I'm done. This is over. I'm stopping this right here. We're moving on. And so the Lord acts on David's behalf. Now, during this time, we've got a short story where we see our two spies, Jonathan and Nehemiah, who are sons of Zadok and Abiathar, go to David. There's some cool things. They dive in a well. They get it, you know, they put, they put a, a blanket over it so nobody knows in there they're in this well. They get around all these sentries and they deliver a message to David. But long story short here, David finds out what Absalom is doing. David flees across the Jordan River And he starts setting up his armies. We also see something else interesting happening here. Ahithophel, after realizing that his advice wasn't going to be taken, he drives his car home, he puts his affairs in order, and he hangs himself, commits suicide. Because Absalom didn't follow him. And at the end of chapter 17, we've got a cliffhanger. And you guys are going to have to stay tuned until next week to find out what happens. But we have two major armies facing each other across the Jordan River, ready to do battle. Absalom at the head of one, David at the head of other. David with Joab, his commander, with his brother Abishai in Ittai. With Absalom over here with the son-in-law or nephew of Joab leading up his army in a bunch of new faces. And that's exactly where we're at. They're getting ready to do battle. And let's stop there. Now let me pull a couple things out of this. Uh, We have about 10 minutes left. Let me pull a couple things out of this that, that I'd like us to learn. One is the consequences of forgiven sin. The consequences of forgiven sin. There's two types of consequences to sin. There's this idea of natural consequences that happen and then there's this idea of punitive damages that are done. When we sin, we sin against God. And what do we deserve because of that? Well, you deserve hell. Period. Question over. You're condemned. Done. Nothing else. That's exactly what you deserve. With forgiven sin, the hell piece is now taken out of the equation and you have natural consequences and punitive damages, but those punitive damages are in the form of discipline. Right, let's think about this for a second. As a father, it's my job to train my children, right? And if I'm training my children correctly, I discipline them, because that's what a father does. When I say, hey, you only get to do this or that, and if you don't do that, or if you go over that, You're going to have this type of discipline. I have to follow through with that discipline. Why? Maybe the kids are extremely sorry for what they did. My kids are probably more sorry that they got caught. But some kids are truly sorry and repentant for what they did. But there's still discipline to be had. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, was absolutely sorry for it. And do you know what? Nathan says... The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. You're completely forgiven for this, David. You don't need to worry about condemnation in hell. But there will be consequences to your sin. Why? Because the Lord is disciplining you. In Hebrews, we say, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son who him receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. David, especially in these chapters we're seeing here, is dealing with the discipline for his sin. The discipline the Lord said that he would have for this sin. Piper got a great quote. He says this, The father's forgiving tenderness is typically excluded or I'm sorry, is typically added to the exclusion of the Father's forgiving toughness. Now, what does that mean? It means that we focus on the tenderness of God and what he does for this, for us, rather than the toughness that he can have on us. David is going through a hard time. David is dealing with the consequences of his sin. Now, the Lord does this to impress upon this The absolute heaviness of sin. Sin is not something that we can just shake off and move on. If there's zero consequences to anything, why would you ever stop doing it? Feels good. I like it. I get ahead. Why wouldn't I keep doing it? Well, we're told not to, and because of that, there is consequences. Just like a parent correcting their child and training them in the way they should go. There's consequences to sin. Sin. It also helps sanctify us and humble us. And we see this specifically in the story with David. David, when he is being confronted with this sin, when he sees and hears that Absalom is on the roof having sex with his wives in the sight of all of Israel, doesn't back down. He doesn't curse the Lord. He doesn't say, Lord, what are you doing? He understands, Lord, you're doing this for me. You're doing this so I'm humiliated and I come to you. So I look to you. This is consequence of things I've done. And he trusts in the Lord. This takes us to our second point of God's control. Throughout this entire story, we see a new David. We see a different David. We see in David and Goliath, a David who is on fire for the Lord and wants to take down the evildoers and be the man. In our story we see relatively passive David a David who has life experience under his belt a David who has been beat up by family issues who's been beat up by sin who's been beat up by the world and now truly understands what it means to trust in the Lord He's not passive from the stance that he doesn't love the Lord and want to do something he's passive from the stance that he understands he can trust in the Lord What does Proverbs 3 say? It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And that's what David is doing here. David is trusting in God's control as he goes through it. Bring the ark with us. No, 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 don't bring the ark. The Lord wants me to win, I'm gonna win. Don't worry about it. Wait, wait, wait. Don't hurt that man for saying those things about me. The Lord is doing this. It's all right. I trust in the Lord. And because of all these things, David is honored. We also have a negative example of this with Ahithophel. Ahithophel says, I trust in myself completely. I can do everything right. Have you ever met that person that everything seems to turn gold in their hands? No matter what they do, everything works out fine. Right? Right? I know lots of people like this and it's absolutely frustrating, right? Because I'm not one of those people, but I'm sure for them it's great. Whatever they touch turns to gold and life is so simple for them. Guess what? That person doesn't need the Lord. And they know that. They've got themselves to trust in. And just like Ahithophel, they trust in themselves, they trust in their counsel instead of turning to their savior. They say, I can do this. Look how well I've done so far. Why do I need God? Why do I have to have rules in my life? Why do I have to look to somebody greater than me? I am the greatest. And how did that work out for him? The second suffering comes into his life, the second somebody doesn't listen to him, the second he's proven wrong, he commits suicide. We see a very similar story with Judas. Judas betrays Jesus. And when he's done, he realizes the depth for how wrong he was and what he did. And what does he do? The exact same thing. He puts his affairs in order and he commits suicide. These men cannot handle this failure, this betrayal, this wrongdoing because they look to themselves rather than God's control in their lives. Now, the last one I want to hit on is Ittai the Hittites. Dedication to our cause. Now, Ittai... He's a very interesting character. We don't have a lot about Ittai. We have two chapters, right? We have this and then a big battle, and that's all we read about him. But he does something that we see only one other place in God's word. Ruth, do you guys remember Ruth? She married a son of a woman who was out of her land. She was in unholy land in Moab trying to get food. She marries one of the sons, The father-in-law dies. Her husband dies. Everything's going apart. And the mother-in-law, Naomi, says, I'm going back to Israel because they'll accept us there. I can't be here anymore. Right? And you've got the two two women, Orpah and Ruth, that say, we're going to go with you. Naomi says, no, don't come with me. Don't worry about it. And then you have this beautiful passage from Ruth and this beautiful promise where she says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. Just like Hittite said, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also Will your servant be? We have these parallels of these two people that don't know that much about this other person. They don't know everything perfectly, but they dedicate their lives to this cause. They dedicate their lives to the Lord and they follow through with it. Spurgeon says this, if Ittai, charmed with David's person and character, though a foreigner and a stranger, Felt that he could enlist beneath his banner for life, yea, and declared that he would do so there and then. How much more may you and I, if we know what Christ has done for us? If you know what Christ has done for you, can you say the same words that Ittai told to David? Can you go to Jesus and say, I want to be where you are? I don't care. I don't care that society hates you. I don't care that everyone is against you. I don't care that people don't like your name and think you're terrible. Can you say, I want to be with you? Where you go, I go. If I die, so be it. Lord, I am yours. This challenges my heart. I hope it challenges yours. Ittai the Hittite, or Ittai the Gittite, gives himself fully for a cause because he knows it is right. He does it publicly in front of everyone. He does it in a way that nobody is ever going to question. He says, David, I am yours. Again, can we do the same thing for Christ? Can you say Christ in public, I am with you, period. No questions about it. Lord, I am yours. Father, we come before you today and we just thank you for your word. We thank you for all of these examples that you've given us in your word. We thank you, Lord, for David. We thank you, Lord, for Ittai. We thank you, Lord, for these wonderful pictures of what we should be to you. We pray, Lord, right now, we plead with you, Lord, that you would just give us faith, that you would give us resolve, and that you would just push us to love you more and dedicate ourselves to you, that we would know there's suffering, that we would know there's pain, we would know that there's hurt, but we also know that you are in charge and love us as your child. In all these things we pray in your son's name, amen.